thank you all for coming and those of you online for listening in. And thank you especially to Marco Donia for excellent work in immunotherapy and for the kind invitation to come back to, to Denmark. <clears throat> I'm happy to be interrupted at any time if anyone has any questions because I know our backgrounds may be different. Not everyone here is a medical oncologist or hematologist oncologist and so you have any questions about what I'm saying, feel free to just jump in. Put your hand up and I'll clarify because probably somebody else will have the question too. Okay, so we're going to talk about immunotherapy, promises and limitations. And um, by way of background, so I'm originally from outside of Chicago, Illinois in uh, America and I did my medical school at University of Chicago. I did uh, internal medicine at Northwestern University also in Chicago. I did a program in hematology and oncology at the National Cancer Institute. I was on the faculty in Portland, Oregon for about uh, five years before moving to University of California, San Francisco. And I'm in clinic on Monday. Marco's on Thursday. I'm in clinic Monday. And then uh, the other days a week, I teach some classes in epidemiology and run a small research group. We're always looking for people who are interested. We have Zoom meetings with lots of European people. So it's always in the morning for us and the afternoon for you. Okay, let's get started. I don't know. When you think about immunotherapy and you think about checkpoint inhibitors, like nivolumab, pembrolizumab, ipilimumab, you think about CAR-T therapy, like Idacel, Siltacel, Tisagenmeclucel, all these cells. You know, one question you may have is, I don't know, how many people are getting these therapies? You know, in cancer medicine, we have so many different types of drugs. We have genomic drugs. You know, you can test for mutations in NHL ALK4 and you can give electinib. You know, you can test for mutations in EGFR. I see Alfredo, I'm thinking lung cancer. You can give osimertinib. Those are genomically targeted drugs. How many people are eligible for those kinds of drugs? What about immunotherapies, like checkpoint inhibitors and CAR-T? And what about cytotoxic drugs like uh, doxyrubicin, cisplatinum, gemcitabine, the old-fashioned drugs? Okay, so a few years ago, maybe 2017, we got interested in trying to just give you a, a rough lay of the land. What does it look like? You know, is immunotherapy, is everyone getting immunotherapy? Some people, which ones are they getting? I'm going to walk you through that kind of work. First paper we did was on the genome-driven drugs. So these are the drugs that... You test for a molecular alteration. If you have that alteration in the tumor, you give the drug that targets that alteration. We published this in JAMA Oncology. And our first result, this is from 2018, I'll show you the update from 2022, was basically that 92% of all people who have advanced or metastatic disease in the US or Switzerland or any country are just not eligible. Why? Because to be eligible for these, you have to have a certain tissue and a certain mutation. And if you multiply out the frequency of the tissues and the frequency of the mutation, this is what you find. The drugs you see here are enacitinib, which is an IDH inhibitor, which is uh, uh, in, the, in the TCA cycle, the citric acid cycle. BRAF and MEK inhibition, FLT3 internal tandem duplication or FLT3 tyrosine kinase inhibition, ROS1, ALK, uh, HER2, uh, you get EGFR. The biggest category is EGFR in lung, just because lung cancer is so common. And then you get down here, you know, BCR able for CML, chronic myeloid leukemia. And if you map this out by year, this is two lines. So the, the blue line is telling you the percent of U.S. cancer patients who would be eligible, like the doctor could prescribe the genome drug. And the orange line is telling you the percent of U.S. cancer patients who might have the tumor shrink or respond, which is considered 30% shrinkage on these drugs. And this is year by year drug approvals. 
what's my point here? My point here is that, okay, it's going up slowly. These genome drugs we talk about all the time. In fact, I think your universe, there's another university in Copenhagen that focuses on the genome drugs. And sure, they do benefit patients, don't get me wrong, but it's a slow and steady 1% per year uphill march. And we're kind of on this trajectory. So we've had inroads, and I show you this to put in context when I show you immunotherapy in a minute. Here I've superimposed the cost of sequencing the genome. This is how much money it costs to sequence a genome. This is a log scale, meaning when it goes from here to here, it's 10 times the price, 10 times the price. This is a three and a half log fold reduction in price. It's cheaper to sequence now than ever before. And these are the years in which the price fell. I've shown you here, I've superimposed the graph. Now the reason I do this is some people say, the moment we do more sequencing, we're gonna find more targets and more drugs. But if that were true, this huge fourfold reduction in price of sequencing would be matched by a commensurate increase in genomic drugs later, but you don't see that. So I think sequencing is not the barrier to genomic drugs. I think the barrier is that there are many tumors that have redundant pathways. You can drug one thing, but the redundancy will keep the tumor alive. And so we're not restricted by brute force sequencing. We're restricted by something else biological. Yet we still make inroads, you know? A few years ago, we didn't know about tropomycin receptor kinase fusions. Now we do. So we have a new drug. I always say there's no exponential growth here. It's just slow, steady growth. Okay, slow and steady. Took this out in a couple more years. We added on and uh, in a paper that we published in Annals of Oncology. Uh, and basically, it's the same trajectory, genome drugs. Okay, now let's do immunotherapy. And first, I'm going to do PD-1, PD-L1, and CTLA-4 drugs. Ipilimumab, pembrolizumab, nivolumab, simiplumab, dervalumab, atezolizumab, those kinds of drugs, okay? So what's been the use of these drugs over time? Any guesses? Is it more or less than genome drugs? Alfredo can't answer. Who thinks, who thinks immunotherapy has more than genomic drugs? Okay. Who thinks less? Less? Okay. All right. A few people. Let's see the answer. Boom. It's crazy high, actually. In 2011, we had the approval of ipilimumab for melanoma, and that's 1% of all cancer deaths. So here's the blue line. And then all of a sudden, boom, they get non-small cell lung cancer. They get hepatocellular carcinoma, get small cell lung cancer. They have market penetration of 47% of all cancer patients. This is why these drugs make so much money, as I'm going to show you. But they've captured all the market share. Look at the orange line. The orange line are the percent of people whose tumor shrinks 30% or more, the responders. How would you say the shape is different, the orange shape versus the blue shape? There's a difference in the shape. Would you agree? Which one looks like it's plateauing? The orange. In the original phase one study by Topolian and Bramer in the New England Journal 2012, if you give pdl one therapy to 1,000 unselected cancer patients, you found roughly a 15 to 20% response rate, which is roughly where the plateau is. The plateau is restricted by biology. This is the biological response to these checkpoint inhibitors. The blue curve is how the clinical trials are conducted. If you work for the pharmaceutical company, which color do you care about more, orange or blue? Blue, because you want that money. That's the market share. But the orange is really the biology of it. That's what the scientist cares about. So the point I want to make is I do think 
maybe at least for these targets, and maybe he'll feel differently about novel targets, but at least for these targets, we may be exhausting the number of people in whom the tumor primarily thrives by immune evasion. Just a thought. Year by year, just like the other figure, the, the orange and the yellow is non-small cell lung cancer. Again, lung cancer is just such a common cause of death that it is the driver of immune therapy use as well. Okay. Now let's do CAR-T therapy. So checkpoint inhibitors are massive blockbuster drugs. Uh, CAR-T. We talk a lot about CAR-T. These are just, these are the FDA-approved only CAR-Ts. Okay, so we've got a bunch for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma, multiple myeloma, Ida cell, silta cell. These are the FDA-approved chimeric androgen receptor CAR-T. And we're going to show you the market penetration. I had to blow up the graph because it's just that at the top. You know, it's just that at the top. The eligibility is around 4% of all cancer patients. And if you put it all together, it looks like this. This is checkpoint inhibitor, CTLA-4, and then PD-1, boom, they get a huge market share. This is genomic drugs in the blue, and these are CAR-T therapy. The fact that CAR-T therapy, the lines are so close, is just the response rates are so high. Okay, so what's the point here? The point here is that, yes, lots of progress with immune therapy. Jim Allison told me once that like in 2007, people didn't want to fund him to do checkpoint inhibitor work. And now, of course, it's the most dominant blockbuster class. CAR-T, it's still slow and steady. But maybe, you know, they're going to have some more inroads in CAR-T in the future. If we can get some solid tumor antigen. But I think the problem with solid tumor is that it's always sort of been, it's, the stroma is so tough, it's hard to get in there. It's just the lay of the land, just so you have an idea that these immune therapies are incredibly popular. They're very they're useful. Uh, they don't help everybody, but they help a lot of people. When it comes to like some CAR-T constructs, like multiple myeloma, this is a paper we wrote uh, about idacaptogene vicolucil, okay, which was the first BCMA, B-cell maturation antigen CAR-T cell. And we pointed out that it has a 100% relapse rate. Now, CAR-T and lymphoma can cure people. And ALL can cure people. And his tills can probably cure people. But CAR-T and myeloma doesn't cure anybody. The cancer eventually grows back. And if you have a 100% relapse rate, and you cost $419,000 per dose, which is what they cost in the US, and it has an 11-month treatment-free interval, you're really paying $40,000 per month free of treatment. And this assumes that the PFS, if you gave him something else, would be zero months, actually. But it won't be zero. It's probably going to be not so different, actually, in my opinion. But this is just too much money. I mean, no society can pay $40,000 a month uh, to extend survival, assuming this extends survival. But that's an assumption here. I think we need to acknowledge that not all these immunotherapy drugs work the same. All right, so immune therapy. Less than 5% of U.S. cancer patients are eligible, so small inroads. Meanwhile, 44% are eligible for Pembro, Nevo, Ipi, and those kinds of drugs. Keytruda is projected to earn $59 billion this year. One drug, Merck, $59 billion. In 1999, the first cancer drug earned $1 billion in a year. That was Paclitaxel. People didn't think you could earn a billion dollars from a cancer drug. They thought you could only earn a billion dollars from a diabetes drug, a cholesterol drug a heart disease drug, because they didn't think there were enough patients with cancer to get to a billion dollars. What they didn't consider was we're just going to raise the price so much until we get there. Now we get to $59 billion, one drug. I'm going to show you the whole landscape. 
So I think immunotherapy has made a clear impact in some diseases. I think certainly in melanoma, it's transformed the disease. In non-small cell lung cancer, I think we all have patients who have long-term durable remission, but in many others, it's been more limited. Let's talk about some trial gains. Now, I showed you that the orange line and the blue line had a different shape. The orange line, the percent of people who respond, that's really limited by biology because you give the drug, either they respond or not. The blue line, the percent of people you can give it to, is defined by the specific inclusion criteria of randomized control trials. And so they do a big, broad, randomized control trial, let's say of Nevo-Ipi, in pdl one negative and positive patients, and let's say the benefit is confined to the negative patients, not the positive patients, but they may get the entire marketing authorization if they have enough of the negative patients to drive the signal. Okay, let me show you a figure what I mean. We call this nested and adjacent subgroups in cancer clinical trials when the best interest of the patient and the company diverge. Okay, what the heck does that mean? Here's what it means. Let's just take, for instance, when you have a cancer and one cancer, you can do a stain for pdl one And that stain can go anything from zero to 100%, okay? Now, if I wanted to analyze this as a scientist, I would first ask, does the drug work in 90 to 100% pdl one Yes, okay. Does it work in 80 to 90? Does it work in 70 to 80? Does it work in 40 to 50? Does it work in 10 to 20? And then along the way, I might find, hey, at 10 to 20 or below, it doesn't work. And above 50% pdl one staining, it does work. Why? Because there's a relationship between these biomarkers and the efficacy of the product. You know, and he can talk more about that in melanoma. And there's certainly the case in non-small cell lung cancer. If you're 50% or higher, a paper by RECT shows, that you can give pembrolizumab monotherapy. But that benefit was actually driven by people who were 90% and higher. And 50 to 89%, it looks like it's kind of a wash. Now, the company doesn't do the analysis the way I suggest. They don't look at the adjacent subgroups. They do nested subgroup, meaning they first look at 50 to 100. Is it positive? Yes. Now let's look at 20 to 100 but 20 to 100 includes 50 to 100, where it's already positive. And then they say yes. And then they look at one to 100, yes. And then they look at the total population, yes. You see what they're doing? It may not, it may not work in these groups, but they're adding in the people in whom it works. And that's the strategy of all these clinical trials. They all use these nested subgroups so that the doctor doesn't really know below what threshold it doesn't work because you're lumping them with the people who are deriving benefit. And we see this across the space in immunotherapy. It's true for head and neck squamous cell cancer. Does anyone own Keynote 48? Who knows Keynote 48? Anyone here? No. Okay. Keynote 48 is pembrolizumab plus platinum plus 5-FU versus the extreme regimens, the toxamab platinum 5-FU. And it actually shows if your pdl one is less than 1%, there's no benefit to pembrolizumab at all, maybe even harm. But the way the trial is structured, the company has approval for the whole population. The same is true for lung cancer. I think I personally, I give Pembro chemo up to pdl one 89%, and I only give Pembro only if you're 90% and above. And there's a paper by Aguilar in Annals of Oncology that makes that case that actually 50% is not the real benefiting group, it's 90% or more. And then in melanoma, Marco can tell you that some of these combination drugs do not work if the pdl one is 1% or greater, 
And they do work if it's less than 1%. But the companies and the system has no incentive to identify the people in whom it works. So the reason the blue line is going up is because we're including people on treatment who are probably not deriving a net benefit. And I think that's true in every single tumor type, just different cuts off, cutoffs and different thresholds. Okay. Is that part clear? Okay, so you're persuaded. All right. Now let me show you one thing. We have this paper. It's under, uh, well, it's uh, submitted. It's called Biomarker-Driven Precision Medicine and Immunotherapy, the Landscape of PD-1 Testing. What the heck does this mean? Here's what we find. You can look at the immune cells, the total cells, the combination, or either or, and there are all these different antibodies to stain for PD-L1 expression, right? There's different antibodies. Every company makes their own stain. And you can look at TC, you could look at IC, you could look at TC plus IC or TC or IC, right? And what you find is if you look across many, many randomized trials or many, many studies in immunotherapy, you find that they're testing different antibodies and, different, and they're looking at different cells, the cancer cells or the stromal cells or both, the microenvironment or the cancer. What does this mean? It means they have so much flexibility of analysis. When you have this kind of flexibility in analysis, post hoc, you can say, hey, it works if the TCIC is above 5%, but it doesn't work if it's below 5%, according to this antibody, 28.8, but not according to this antibody. I mean, it really gives them a lot of power to manipulate the statistical plan to find the biggest population in whom they can argue there's a benefit. Another way to show it is, this is the actual analysis. These are published results by drug company, they're using different antibodies and which ones, which antibody they're using and how many times they're running it uh, on tumor cells only, in the immune cells only, the combination, or either or. This is showing you like, this is just what's published. They may be running many, many more analytic plans that they're not showing you. Okay. Right here. The point here is also that, I mean, the first point was that if I was working at the company, I'm, my goal is to capture the largest market share. So I'm gonna use nested subgroup analysis. My other goal is if I have a negative clinical study, I need to salvage that negative result. And the easiest way to salvage a negative result is to try many, many different antibodies and look at many, many different combinations of cells to try to find subgroups that might derive benefit. Now, th this is all artificial. I mean, you can basically also look to see by zodiac sign and you could say Sagittarius benefits and Capricorn doesn't. But if you look at enough different dimensions, you will find some subgroups that benefit by chance alone. And the point I want to make is that the stains we use against PD and PDL1 are not standardized. They vary widely across companies. What they're looking at is different. And because of this, many things that we think are real results might merely be an artifact. We just don't know the full extent of analytic plans run. That's the point I want to make. Now, it's probably not true in melanoma. But it might be true in something like uh, uh, gastric cancer, where you have a very flimsy result that hinges on a CPS score uh, uh, in nivolumab, in uh, checkmate six, four, nine, gosh, there's so many. Um, but it, it might have a role in some of these other tumor types. Melanoma is one, of course, we know a long time, it's been exquisitely sensitive to immunotherapy. And before that, uh, uh, IL-2. Okay, here's the market. Okay, let me pause there make sense? You know, it's also called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. What does that mean? 
I don't know how to shoot a gun, but if you give me a gun and I shoot it at the wall a few times, and then you go allow me to paint the bullseye on the wall, guess what? I look like I'm pretty good at shooting, right? It's the same thing. If you allow the person to tell you the subgroup that benefits after they've run the study, and you give them many, lots of freedom in how they paint the bullseye, they can paint the bullseye in a way it looks like they've won. But it doesn't mean it actually works. Okay. The market for these drugs is tremendous. I mean, absolutely tremendous. We're talking about $75 billion per annum projected earnings. I mean, this is going to be one of the major concerns of healthcare systems is just the cost of these drugs. It surprises me that with all these different PDL1 drugs, a country like a European country could make a knockoff PDL1 drug and sell it at cost, and they could just crush the competition with this, you know, you can make your own PDL1 drug rather than pay $80 billion over a decade. Just make our own one. Okay. Immunotherapy is moving up earlier and earlier. It's moving into the adjuvant space. Do you know what adjuvant means in metastatic? Okay. Some people. Who doesn't know? It's okay. Okay. All right. We have an economist here. Okay. All right. Let me give some background. Okay. If you take everybody who has cancer each year in America, you get something like 1.7 million people have cancer. Okay. 600,000 people have what we call advanced or metastatic cancer, and maybe 1.2 million people have local cancer. So local cancer means I have a cancer in my colon or breast. It's only in my colon or breast or lung. It hasn't gone anywhere. The surgeon can come and cut it out entirely, and you can put me in a scanner and scan me with my local cancer. You cut it out entirely, and there's no cancer you can find in my body. That's a local cancer but it doesn't mean that I'm free and clear. Those people often, depending on the cancer and the stage, can have very, very high rates of recurrence. In lung cancer, if they're 3A, for instance, and you cut it all out, at five years, they may have something like 60 or 70% of those people will have the cancer come back and had spread to the spine. Why does that happen? Well, it's already spread. You just don't see it. The time you did the surgery and cut it out, there was like two cells in the spine. There were two cells in the liver. You just couldn't see that, okay? So that's called the local setting. And if you give a drug to somebody who you cut out the cancer and you want to kill those last two cells that are hiding in the liver, that's called adjuvant treatment, okay? Now, metastatic cancer means somebody comes with cancer and you scan them and there's lesions everywhere in the body. I mean, in the liver, in the spine. It started in the breast, but it's already spread everywhere. For the most part, in solid cancers, we cannot cure such cancers. We can cure it rarely, maybe melanoma. He'll take credit for that. I would say lung cancer almost never can be cured. I mean, we're lucky to have a few durable remissions. Uh, testicle cancer we can cure, but most cancers, breast, ovary, prostate, lung, that inevitably the person will pass away. Drugs are initially developed in the metastatic setting first. They don't drive up in the, in the adjuvant setting first. Why? It's easy to get a metastatic drug to work. All you do is shrink the cancer a little bit, and if you can shrink it a little bit, keep it from growing a little bit, you usually can add some life to somebody. In the local setting, you have a tougher, tougher job. You cut out all the cancer, you scan them, you don't see any cancer. The drug has to be so good, it finds those two cells and kills them all. It has to eradicate microscopic disease, typically. And that's very difficult for a drug to do. I mean, it usually it requires a better drug. In fact, proof of that is, out of every drug we use in the metastatic space, only one in three has succeeded in the adjuvant space. Okay, so do you guys have a sense of this adjuvant metastatic distinction? I think it's one of the most important distinctions in oncology. We don't talk about enough. 
immunotherapy so far has worked very, very well in the metastatic space, and they're trying it now in the adjuvant space. Why? Because they're gonna get a lot more money, they got a lot more patients. Like I said, 1.2 million people don't have metastatic disease. So what we did was, we took all these, and this is with Timothy Olivier, who works with him in Geneva Hospital, we took all the cancer trials that tried to give any drug in the adjuvant space, and we asked one simple question. How much money do you spend on the drug to prevent one person from having the cancer come back in the spine, okay? How much money do you spend to prevent one recurrence or relapse? Okay, that's the question. Here's the answer. US dollars on the bottom. Millions, millions of dollars. I mean, the best one, pembrolizumab melanoma, we're still talking about nearly a million. But you look at nivolumab in bladder cancer, just under a million. You look at atezolizumab in lung, we're talking about over $2 million. Now, can a society spend $2 million on drug to prevent, not, not to save one life, to prevent one person from having a cancer recur during the duration of follow-up? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. The dollar per quality just a life year is very difficult because we don't have life years measured directly, but we're talking about astronomical sums of money being spent here. And you can see many immunotherapy drugs are on this list. That's why I put it up here. One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, pembro breast, my God. Okay, so what's the point here? You can have good drugs, but if you give them so indiscriminately and they charge so much for them, you're gonna have lots of toxicity and you're gonna have unsustainable pricing. Okay, is this good, clear? Pembrolizumab for all. Well, we wrote this crazy idea where we said actually the current system of giving out pembrolizumab is so suboptimal. We have some clinical trials with certain cutoffs, not other cutoffs. They're doing all these nested analyses. They have so many different antibody stains. You know what's even cheaper? And, and, and some people, they have a response to melanoma drugs, but they take it for 10 years. I mean, I've seen patients with 10 years of nivolumab, even though they responded in the first six months and they're pet negative for 10 years. He don't like this idea because he likes to stop. He likes the idea of stopping it because it's so expensive. Okay, so we said, what about, what if you just took all the money we were spending, these were like, I think it's per, uh, I think it's one quarter, one quarter, like one fourth of the year in the US spending, and we took all the money that we're spending on all these drugs, we added it up, and we basically said, we did a calculation that said it's actually probably cheaper to give everybody with cancer, when you get a cancer diagnosis, you get six doses of pembrolizumab. Here you go, and you can use them whenever you want. And once you use your sick dose, six doses, you're done. And it's actually cheaper than the current system where some people we pay for years and years of therapy, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, there are always some patients who do respond who don't meet current eligibility guidelines. I mean, there's a few people who do respond who are not otherwise eligible for immunotherapy. And we did some calculations in this paper where we showed that probably in terms of life years, this may even be a, a better strategy than the current strategy of indefinite treatment in some cancers, but not others, okay. Call it the current regulatory framework of numerous overlapping clinical trials leads to complex approval indications is redundant and inefficient. We conclude that giving Pembro in any metastatic solid tumor in any line may lead to better outcomes with minimal increase in cost. Okay. Gonna pause for a second. So, does this make sense to you all? You all work mostly on the lab side. 
No? Like, who does laboratory work in immunotherapy? Okay. Who does clinical work in immunotherapy? Okay. So all these clinicians. Okay, and then who does bioinformatics work? Statistical work? Okay. Uh, okay. So, I mean, I think, I don't know if this is surprising to you, but I think for me, a lot of this was surprising. I thought like that immunotherapy is, you know, an unalloyed good, but I think it's like everything else. It's got some nuance to it. Okay. I'm thinking about um, you know, we've written a lot of papers about something called censoring in cancer clinical trials, and it affects immunotherapy a lot. So let's talk about what the heck is censoring. What is this censoring? It's not, it doesn't mean you get banned from Facebook. We're talking about Kaplan-Meier censoring. So, you know, whenever you look at this plot, you've all seen a plot like this. This is like a survival plot. This is like everybody starts out alive, and every time the curve goes down, someone's dying, and then there are all these tick marks on it. There are all these numbers at the bottom. It looks like, like the red curve is like living longer than the black curve here. What the heck does this mean? Okay, here's some things to know. Every time the curve goes down, it means somebody had the event. Okay, with an overall survival plot, there's only one event that they could have had. What's that event? Death. The number at the bottom shows the number of people still at risk at the start of that time interval. Okay? The larger steps at the end, you can see over at the end of the plot, look how big these steps are. Boom, boom. And this is so big. How many people died right here? One. Who said one? They're right. And over here, what happens when one person dies? Why is it a small step? Does anyone know why? One person dies here, it's very small. One person dies here, it's a very big drop. Yes, there are many more at risk at the start. Basically what the plot is saying is that for everybody we know about in the first month, let's take their r rate of death in the first month. For everybody we know about between months 100 and between months 90 and 100, let's take their rate of death and let's assume that if everyone made it between 90 and 100 months, they would have the same rate of death in that time period. So every time one person dies, there's probably only like five people at risk here because this looks like one-fifth of the drop. It's basically averaging the information about the people you know what happened to and assuming that would have happened to everybody had they been followed long enough. That's the whole point of a Kaplan-Meier plot. It's a maximal information harvesting. So you get larger steps at the end because fewer people are at risk. So the, what happened to Tom or Susie is assumed to happen to lots of Toms and Susies, which may even be an erroneous estimate. That's why people say this tail is a very unreliable part of the curve. Vertical tick marks mean that a patient is censored, meaning that we don't know what happened to that person after that time interval. So when the number goes down, it goes down for two reasons. One, they had the event, they died. And two, they were censored. We don't know what happened to them. So the reason there's two people left here is that a bunch of people died and then a couple people and a lot of people, we just don't know what happens to them between months 100 and 120 because we didn't follow them that long. Okay, so this is, this, is sense, this is the basic idea of censoring. It's maximum information harvesting and the key assumption is uninformative. That the people I didn't follow, they're no healthier, wealthier, or wise than those I did follow that we can assume that they're the same people, we just, for whatever reason, they just enrolled recently, they didn't follow long enough, and we can extrapolate the results of those we've measured to those people. But that assumption may not be true. Okay. Does anyone know why 
when you look at the progression-free survival, it has these dips, but overall survival is smooth. Do you know why it has these dips? Like every, it looks like every few weeks, everyone had the event all of a sudden. Yes, the time of the scan. So progression-free survival is different than overall survival because it's a time to event endpoint where a couple things could be. One could be the person died, or two, the scan looked like the tumor got bigger. For the scan to look like the tumor got bigger, you had to do the scan. And you don't do the scan every day of the week. You only do the scan at certain pre-specified intervals. So that's why all the events happen in this sort of binned manner. Okay. So you can do a Kaplan-Meier plot for something like a PFS. When you run a randomized controlled trial, you don't get everybody on day one. Typically, you get some people in the first year, some people in the second year, some people in the third year. And then you have a follow-up period where you follow them into the future to see what happened to them. And then along the way, the statistician may say, hey, let's stop and do an analysis right here. If you do an analysis right here, this person has one, two and a half years of follow-up, but the person you enrolled just last year only has like six months of follow-up, right? So what do you do to this person if they got to six months, they're doing fine on therapy, but I don't know what happens to them at eight months or 10 months because that's in the future, I don't know. Do I count them as an event? No. Do I, what do I do then? I censor them. I censor them on the plot. Okay. So what are the reasons someone is censored? For overall survival, there's only two reasons you censor somebody. One, they enrolled recently. And two, you, for, you don't know where they went. They disappeared. Like Marco, when he doesn't reply to my text message. He's just gone. He's just gone. Where'd he go? <laughs> for progression-free survival, there's two reasons. They enrolled recently and they lost a follow-up. But there's a third reason. That's the crux of this issue. There's a third reason that they get censored that doesn't happen for OS. Okay, does anyone know what the third reason is? So in a few minutes. What do you need for PFS that you don't need for OS? That's the third reason. What do you need for overall survival? You just need to know if they're alive or dead. The scan. So what happens? What's the third reason? They didn't show up to the scan. They didn't get the scan. Whereas with overall survival, you still know if they're there. They may, be, they may be home, but you know if they're alive or dead. You can check their records. But with PFS, if they don't get the scan, that's another reason. The scan. It's progression-free survival. It's the time until we start by measuring the cancer, and it's the time until one of four things happen, whichever comes first. The patient could die. There could be new lesions on the scan. The lungs didn't have anything. Now they have nodules. That's progression. Tumor gets bigger. has to be 120% bigger. 119% bigger we call sweet, sweet, stable disease. That's good. But 122% is bad. No, it's arbitrary. They pick an arbitrary number. Nobody feels good at 119, feels bad at 120. It's arbitrary. Shrinkage, if you shrink more than 30%, we call it a response. And progression is defined as 20% growth from the smallest it ever gets. This is also arbitrary. It's based on what old men could feel with marbles under a foam mattress in 1976. That's actually where it comes from. I should tell that story someday to oncology people. The patient has to get the scan. That's the key. Okay. So a few years ago, we read this paper, <clears throat> and then I'm going to tie it to immunotherapy. We read this paper. It's called Everlimus in Postmenopausal, blah, 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 breast cancer. You don't need to know any of that. Here's what you need to know. Oh, they proved it based on this trial. The trial has a PFS benefit, but, and that PFS benefit is big. But the overall survival was absolutely null. There's no survival benefit. 
So here's this drug, overall survival, hazard ratio, 0.89, not significant, looks like you know mostly the same. But the PFS, look at this, nicely binned because they're doing the scans properly on time. And Everolimus plus Eximestane does better than placebo Eximestane. But no survival benefit. But PFS benefit. Okay, you get it. All right, so why does this happen? Well, everyone says what happens is, well, they had a benefit, but then we gave them all these other drugs and it like washed away the benefit. The other drugs are so good, it compensated for the benefit. To that I say, if the other drugs are so good and it can compensate for the benefit, then why the hell do I need to give this drug? I can just give the other drugs, right? That's a crazy argument. I don't need to give this drug. It costs $100,000, right? I just, I'll skip it and I just give the other drugs later and they live as long. Why give this drug? Okay, but they say that. But there's another reason. Okay, this is what, this is what they say. You give the new drug, they do better, but then the older drugs don't work as well, but overall survival is the same. That's the argument that the companies make. To me, I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I'm running the marathon to the end. I mean, doesn't, you know, I'd rather, does it matter if the first arrow is bigger? All right. But is that the only reason? Could censoring be a part of it? Numbers at the bottom, and you look at where the curve is, you can say 485 people started, the curve went down 10%, that number should go down 48, the number went down 398. Wait, 480 minus 48, that doesn't go to 398. There's a lot of people censored right there on that curve. And then you do 485, da, 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 you do the math, blah, blah, blah. It should be 326, but it's 398. 27 people are, 28 people are censored. Okay, that's 7%. And then you look at the control arm, and you draw the line, and then you do the math, and then you say, huh, only two per, less than 1% of people are censored. In this curve, 7% of people are censored on the experimental arm, but only 1% of people are censored on the control arm at the first time interval. Does anyone know why? Seven times is, yes. Yeah, yeah, you got it, you got it. So he's saying, why on the experimental arm, seven times as many people are lost in the first time interval than the control arm. The only the explanation can't be the enrolled last week. Why? It's randomized study. It should be equal in the last week, randomized, right? It's one arm, one arm. The only explanation is if there's something different happening to one arm. And he's already figured it out. The difference is the drug is so toxic. They feel so crappy. They don't come to get the scan. And 7% of people, it's, the drug makes them so sick, they don't get the scan. Now the question is, those 7% of people who don't get the scan, are they the same as the people who do to get the scan? No, why? Who are they? Who, if I give you, if I give everyone in this room a little bit of atropine, a little bit of a poison, who's the person most likely to, to survive? The younger and healthy. Marco and I are done. But you all might survive. Okay, the same in the trial. What the trials have done is they're excluding the patients who are the frailest and most vulnerable from the experimental arm, but not the control arm, okay? So the PFS that they're showing you is the average among those they measured, which is not the same as in the control arm because you've knocked out 6% of people and it's not, an, it's not a random 6%, it's the sickest, most vulnerable and frail 6%. Okay, so censoring, imbalances in censoring may violate the assumption of uninformative censoring and may create a false PFS difference when there is no PFS difference. So why does the trial have no benefit? I think it's because there's no PFS benefit either. 
It's an artifact of the fact you knocked out 6% of the population. Okay, and it proved that Osama Bilal, who was a mathematician at Johns Hopkins, we did a simulation where we recreate the curves and we created alternative assumptions for censoring. And basically we said, let's assume every censored patient lives forever and let's assume they progress immediately. And if you make this assumption, you can show the curves cross rather readily. They quickly cross. In other words, it's possible the results of Bolero are compatible with this drug doesn't do anything. It doesn't make you have a low, it doesn't slow progression. It's just, it's just you've censored more people because it's a, it's a toxic drug. It's not good. It's not fun to take. Okay. So that's what I think is going on in this study. That's the real explanation. There is no PFS benefit. That's a ghost. It's a ghost because we knocked out 6% and we forgot about him. We didn't care. Okay. So five minutes. Okay. So then this guy, Tito Fajo, he was my mentor at the National Cancer Institute. He, he really cared about this issue a lot. And he went to David Collingridge at Lancet Oncology and he said, David Collingridge, you need to make them tell me how many people are censored at each time interval. I can't go with the ruler and measure and do a calculation. That's a waste of my time. Make them tell me. They know how many. And so David Collingridge said, okay, we'll add it at the bottom. We'll put those numbers right here, right here, right here, right here. We'll add it so we'll give you happy. You're happy, Tito? And now it's a standard practice in Lancet Family Journals. They give you this information. So Tito made them do it. Great. And then I found, okay, I can take this information and use it. Then I found her, Kate Rosen, my medical student. I said, Kate Rosen, get all the issues of the Lancet and download all the Lancet and count all these things and count them all up and blah, 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 blah. And she comes back six months later with this paper. All right, here's the takeaway. Okay, we count it all up, blah, blah, blah. We count it all up, all the trials. Each dot is a trial in the Lancet, okay? And this shows you how many people had more intervention arm censoring and more control arm censoring at the first time point, okay? This is like a bolero. In fact, do I show the bolero? Yeah, this is like a bolero over here. Like more people on the experimental arm are censored at an early time point. Okay, and the sample size is like 300. And he, she also finds that on average, slightly more people are censored on the control arm of randomized studies at the first time. On average, just a little bit more control arm censoring on average. Who knows why? On average, a little bit more people on the control arm don't show up to the scan than the intervention arm. Yes, patient disappointment. The patient gets the control arm. They know it's a control arm. Either they don't have any side effects. They're like, this, is a ca this cancer medicine feels really good. It feels a little fishy. Or it's open label. You tell them you're, getting, you're not getting anything, and they tell you to go to hell. They say, go to hell. I don't want to do this study. So that's why there's a slightly weighted average to where it's drop out on the control arm. But there are a few dots that come out here, and those are problematic. Those are probably very toxic drugs that knock out some people, and they can lead to imbalance in the study. Okay. Uh, this is one that was really atrocious, lutetium-177 PSMA. It had so much censoring in it. It's actually off the charts censoring in the control arm. It was like patient disappointment was 56%. Then they had like some what they call a uh, enhanced education, which to me sounds like Guantanamo Bay. They like dunked their heads and made them re-educate themselves. And then they got it down to 16%, but it's off the charts. And once you get censoring so profoundly imbalanced, it's not randomized anymore. It's actually not a randomized study. It's a subgroup of people who are randomized, and so that's an imbalanced study, and actually these studies should be thrown away. And actually the FDA threw away this one, Quisartinib, but they didn't throw away this one. Okay, all right, last thing. Then enter Timothy Olivier, his colleague at Geneva Hospital. He came to a year with me, really bright guy, and he said that he sees this problem, and he found a study where he found it, and basically that study was Ipinevo, it was Larkin's study. And basically what he goes through is he finds that the quality of life questionnaire is filled out by even fewer people than those who get the scan. 
So this study shows that there's no worse quality of life with Ipi Nevo than, you know, um, than uh, 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 Ipi alone. And he says that the quality of life questionnaire is not being filled out by everybody. That some people don't fill it out because they're censored on the quality of life questionnaire. Who's the person who doesn't fill it out? Is it the person who feels great? No, it's the person who feels sick. And so he goes back through the study and he re-imputes what might have happened had they filled it out correctly. And he basically shows, he thinks, a reduction in quality of life from combination epinevo, which is all the more reason to make sure you give it to somebody who can actually benefit and not give it to somebody who's pd one positive. I'll stop here. All right. So, what are the takeaway lessons? I think that, um, I hope you learned something about the Kaplan-Meier thing. Um, I guess I'd say that, like, you know, all this research is important that you're doing, and uh, sometimes it helps to take like the 30,000 foot view of the space. You look at the whole space of cancer, it's clear that immunotherapy is a blockbuster. I mean, half of patients, 10 years ago when I started, oh my God, I started in 2012. When I started, uh, we didn't give it. We didn't even know what it was. And now 40% of patients are getting it. They're making $76 billion annually. That's, that's a big change. Some of those people are benefiting. There's no doubt about it. We all have success stories. Is the company trying to give it to more people? Yeah, they're trying to give it to more people than benefit. Is it our job to try to figure out who actually benefits with biomarkers? Yeah, that's our job. We have to figure it out. They're not gonna figure it out. They wanna give it to everybody. They wanna put it in the water supply if they could, okay? We have to cut it back. We have to cut it back to who benefits. They're running clinical trials where they're giving it to everyone adjuvant. It costs too much. They have to either lower the price or they have to rethink the strategy. They have to target the highest risk population. They can't give it to everybody. And then when it comes to censoring, they're playing games in their studies. These games are very hard to find. You have to like focus on trying to figure out the games. So that means we have to do some better studies. By we, I mean European governments because America is hopeless. They're not gonna do it for you. It's gotta be a European government. All right, so those are my thoughts. Thank you all for your attention. We'll do a questions later, I guess, with the panel. Thank you.